It's a big day in the Catholic Church because five cardinals, I'm going to talk about them today, have gently challenged Pope Francis on five controversial topics heading into the controversial synod on synodality. Today we're going to talk about those five cardinals. We're going to talk about the five controversial issues, and we're going to look at the five dubia. First off, we got to define dubia. Dubia is a Latin word, plural of dubium, and it's simply a question. Uh, there's a doubt in the Catholic Church or something unclear. So we're just going to ask the Pope, hey, we have something we're concerned about. We're going to submit this question to you. And usually a dubium is a yes or no answer. So that's what's going on today. Who are these cardinals who have issued the five dubia? Um, Francis did give a response to them, but not with the yes and no traditional answer. First off, we've got Cardinal Brandmuller, uh, a man I respect. I've met him before, and he was involved, as you'll remember, with the dubia that were set out in 2016 with the controversial statement or document Amoris Laetitia. Four cardinals signed those dubia, which were submitted to the Pope and never actually answered. Um, he was joined with Cardinal Leo Burke, Raymond Leo Burke, who we'll talk about next. This is, oh, and Cardinal Braunmuller was formerly the prefect on the Pontifical Committee for Historical Sciences. Next is the one we know most, and that is the American Cardinal Burke. Raymond Leo Burke is the former prefect for the Apostolic Signatura. This is uh, a court in Rome that sees cases, very important posts. He was removed by Pope Francis from that important post, and he's sort of been uh, a voice of orthodoxy, a, vo a voice of sanity. He's known for his expertise in canon law, and he and Cardinal Brandmuller seem to be the driving force behind these dubia. And I'm going to get to the point towards the end here. Don't leave me. I'm going to talk about how I think that Cardinal Burke is following a canonical procedure traced out by St. Robert Bellarmine in his book on the church, De Ecclesia, on how to admonish and then remove perhaps a tyrannical or heretical pope. We'll get to that. The third signee on these five dubia is none other than a favorite in the Catholic Church, Cardinal Robert Sarah. He's the former prefect for the dicastery for divine worship. Uh, he's loved by all, an African cardinal, uh, known for his piety, his si silence, and for a somewhat sober take on liturgy, uh, leaning more towards the reverent Novus Ordo, tolerant of the traditional Latin Mass. We could say that Cardinal Sarah is sort of the Pope Benedict generation of understanding liturgy. And then our fourth is another favorite, and that is Cardinal Joseph Zen, former Archbishop of Hong Kong. Many people have concluded that Cardinal Zen has been done wrong by Pope Francis. As you know, Francis, through the help of ex-Cardinal McCarrick, sealed a deal 
with China in which the communist government would be selecting bishops. This kind of goes back to the English Reformation and the investiture controversy in the Middle Ages. And he was very much opposed to this arrangement, sought to have audience with the Pope, and was never actually heeded or heard. So that's Cardinal Zen. He's our fourth cardinal issuing these dubia, these questions to Pope Francis right before the Synod on Synodality. And then the fifth is a wild card. This is Father Juan Sandovo Iñiguez. Hopefully I said that correct. He's the former Archbishop of Guadalajara. As you know, Guadalajara had uh, the fraternity of St. Peter, has a traditional Latin Mass. And it's great to see a, a new face joining the ranks. We kind of all expected Bron Mueller, Burke, Sarah, and Zen. And now we have Cardinal Iñiguez, former Archbishop of Guadalajara. So great to see these five. There are some other cardinals that did not sign this document. And I'm not going to name the names, but, you know, I'm curious. Why, as my wife said this morning as we're drinking coffee in the kitchen, why only five? Why can't we get more than five cardinals to sign off, to ask these questions? This is the concern. Now, these five cardinals have also wrote a, a note, kind of like a tweet to you, the faithful, to the lay people, because they think this is a serious matter. And so this is what the cardinals have written to you. Yes, they've written the Pope, but they've also written to the lady, the faithful. Here's what they say, translated. Given the grave matter of the dubia, especially in view of the coming session of the Synod of Bishops, we judge it our duty to inform you, the faithful, so that you may not be subject to confusion, error, and discouragement, but rather may pray for the universal church, and in particular the Roman pontiff, that the gospel may be taught ever more clearly and followed ever more faithfully. This is key, and this is where I'm going to get into St. Robert Bellarmine. They are, yes, admonishing the Pope. That's a key word, admonishing. But they're also now sending a signal to the lay people. Why? They gave three reasons. That you, everyone watching right now, they're writing to you, that you may not be subject to confusion, error, and discouragement. Okay, confusion, what's going on in the church? I'm so confused. You know, the Holy Ghost is the spirit of order, of rationality. The Holy Spirit is not the spirit of confusion. The spirit of confusion is the malignant devil. Secondly, error. This is another way of saying heresy. We don't want you to fall into heresy. What is heresy? Heresy is choosing your own beliefs instead of the beliefs given by Jesus Christ to the 12 apostles, right? The, the Greek word that formed the basis for heresy is I choose. It's the choice. It is I'm going down the buffet at Luby's and I want chicken fried steak, and I want green beans, and I want some refried. No, not refried. That'd be nasty. We don't refry, but maybe some 
some pinto beans and I want not the red jello. I want the green jello and I'll have an iced tea unsweetened. You know, you go through the lubies, you get your whole, what you want. That is not Christianity. All right. We do not get to pick and choose what we want. Like I want Jesus loves me and died on the cross, but I don't really believe in miracles. So I don't want the multiplication of fishes and loaves. And I don't like the teaching on sexuality. So I'm going to pass on that. You know, you can't do that. It's all or nothing. In fact, the word Catholic, Catholique, means kata, according, holos, whole, according to the whole. I feel like I'm in uh, my big fat Greek wedding. Give me any Greek word. Kataholos, according to the whole. When you're Catholic, it's according to the whole of the church in time and in space, but it's also according to the whole of the deposit of faith. Everything in the deposit of faith, faith and morals, you are required to believe. You can't pick and choose like you're not at Luby's. You are required to believe every jot and tittle required. They also say that we may pray for the universal church, and in particular, the Roman pontiff, that the gospel may be taught ever more clearly, followed ever more faithfully. Faithfully, pardon me. Okay, the timeline, what's been going on? These five cardinals, Braunmuller, Burke, Sarah, Zen, and Inez, on July 11th, submitted the five new dubia to Pope Francis. They received a reply on July 13th. So two days, they submitted them on July 11th. On July 13th, they got them back. They kept all this confidential. Now, the dubia, which we're about to go through, are yes or no binary answers require yes or no binary answers to questions. Francis did not write back affirmative or negative. He wrote back in paragraph form. And in fact, Sandro Magister, who is the Italian journalist who I respect and follows much of this very closely, he says that the writing style reveals that it was most likely written by Heal Me With Your Mouth, Cardinal Fernandez from Argentina. This is Francis's friend. He was made a cardinal over the last week. And I did a show on him. We've talked about him. He's the guy who wrote Heal Me With Your Mouth and talked about kissing the bruja, the witch, all this very strange thing. He's now the prefect for the dicastery and the doctrine of the faith. So he's now the watchdog for all things theological in the Catholic Church, which is concerning. So, because on July 13th, these five cardinals received back a statement that they did not esteem as clear. They did not judge this as worthy to the gravity of the situation. They created a second round of five dubia. And after this, they went to the faithful and let them know, hey, here's what's going on. We're trying to accomplish clarity before the Senate on these five issues. And so far, we've not been successful. So we're now doubling down and submitting them again. So let's look at the original dubia that were submitted in July. Okay, let's follow the timeline. First off, 
the number one, the dubia claim that we should reinterpret divine revelation according to the cultural and anthropological changes in fashion. All right, here it is. After the statement of some bishops, which have been neither corrected nor retracted, it is asked whether the church divine should be interpreted according to the cultural changes of our time and according to the new anthropological vision that these changes promote, or whether divine revelation is binding forever, immutable, and therefore not to be contradicted according to the dictum of the Second Vatican Council, that to God who reveals is due the obedience of faith. That what is revealed for the salvation of all must remain in their entirety, enti 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 entirety, entirety throughout the ages and alive and be transmitted to all generations. I'm going to stop reading there. All right, so this is the idea that divine revelation, which comes to us through Scripture and tradition, can it be changed? And in particular, I like how they focus on this, can it be changed according to the new anthropological vision? What does that mean? Anthropological, Greek word. It means according to a understanding of humanity, the human person. But there's this new idea, this new theology of what it means to be human. And can we reinterpret the Bible and tradition according to that new vision of what it means to be a human? I like this because beneath the surface is the idea that there are theologians, bishops, cardinals, leaders, people in the Vatican who believe in a new vision, a new anthropology a new understanding of what it means to be human. That right there reveals that these nouvelle theologie thinkers, these new theology thinkers, have said that the old vision of what it means to be a human being, from the Old Testament to Jesus Christ, the apostles, the church fathers, the scholastics, all the way up until the 1960s was wrong. And suddenly in the 1960s, we had this enlightened, optimistic view, a new anthropology. And now we've got to reinterpret all dogma and all morality according to a new anthropology. That's a problem. Second dubia about the claim that the widespread practice of the blessing of same-sex unions would be in accord with Revelation and the Magisterium. It is asked... Can the church derogate from this principle, considering it contrary to what Veritatis Splendor 103 taught as a mere ideal and accepting as a possible good objectively sinful situations such as same-sex unions without betraying revealed doctrine? So, it is revealed in the Old Testament, it is revealed in the New Testament, that marriage, matrimony, is between a man like Adam, and a woman, like Eve. And holy matrimony is a man in a woman. And that God gave the man procreative organs, and he gave the woman procreative organs, and those procreative organs work together to create one flesh. So much so that a new human person is procreated from that act. All right, this is Adam and Eve, this is the Old Testament, this is the New Testament. It is the icon or the image or the mystery of Christ and the church. 
and it is the unbroken tradition of the Catholic Church, East and West, from AD 33 right on up to our time. And yet there are people, namely in Germany, but also in America, who have a new anthropology, a new vision for what is human, and they want to say all of that is wrong. Old Testament, New Testament, or at least the way we understood the Old Testament, there's a new hermeneutic, a new interpretation. And now that we're so enlightened since the 1960s, we can now interpret all of that in a way that says it's actually a good thing. And since love is love, we should be blessing love because God is love and love is love and love is love. Love is love. The Holy Spirit is love. Therefore, there should be blessings on the same-sex unions. So the second dubia, first dubia is whether we can just reinterpret everything. Second dubia is, is there a new principle in the church so that there is a blessing of objectively sinful situations? All right, now dubia three. Dubia 3 about the assertion that the synodality is a constitutive element of the church so that the church would, by its very nature, be synodal. So this is the claim going into the Synod on Synodality that ultimately the church is constituted, is the language, in synodality. The traditional belief in the Catholic Church is that yes, bishops are successors of the apostles and have juridical power and authority to govern and sanctify their geographic territories, which we call a diocese. But the hub, the focus, the center of that unity of all the bishops is the connection to the apostolic see of Rome where Peter died and where Peter is buried. And there in Rome is the successor of St. Peter. And he is the first amongst equals. And he has direct juridical authority over every baptized person in every diocese of the whole world. Why? Because Jesus says, whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. The whole earth. Right, A bishop can't say, well, in my diocese, the Pope has a no, no authority because I'm the bishop in this diocese. No, the Pope has the keys because he's a successor of St. Peter to have direct juridical authority and access to that diocese because that diocese is located on planet Earth. All right. This new idea is that authority is based on synodality, not just the bishops having more power, but the whole idea that we would consult the lay people and non-Catholics, which is part of the Synod of Synodality, to determine the shape and the direction of the Catholic Church and the gospel to be preached to the ends of the world. Here is the dubium. Number three, Given that the Synod of Bishops does not represent the College of Bishops, but is merely a constitutive organ of the Pope, 
Since the bishops, as witness of the faith, cannot delegate their confession of the truth, it is asked whether synodality can be the supreme regulative criterion of the permanent government of the church without distorting her constitutive order willed by her founder, that's Jesus, whereby the supreme and full authority of the church is exercised both by the Pope, by virtue of his office, and the College of Bishops, together with its head, the Roman Pontiff. What's kind of going on here, it's a confusing topic, I know, but what's kind of going on here is Pope Francis and those who got him into his current office, his current situation, they want him to use papal power to have, for example, the ordination of women or the blessing of same-sex unions or the reversal of humanae vitae and the acceptance of contraception, in some cases the accept exception of abortion as long as it's according to your conscience, etc. But if the Pope comes right out and just starts doing this, he looks like a medieval Pope king. They don't want that. They are allegedly egalitarian. And so what they want to do is, is they're creating this idea of synodality where they ask all the people and poll the people, and then according to the polls, the Holy Spirit reveals something, and then the Pope just rubber stamps and says, well, this is what the people of God wanted, so that's what the Holy Spirit wanted, and who am I to resist it? I stamp it, right? I dip, I take my ring, my papal ring, and dip it into the red wax and authorize it. Fourth dubium. About pastors and theologians' support for the theory that the theology of the church has changed and therefore that priestly ordination may be conferred on women. Here we go into women's ordination. Before I keep going, if you're enjoying this, benefiting, make sure you like the video. We have 1,461 people watching on Twitter, Facebook, Rumble, and YouTube. Only 346 likes. Mash that like button. Let's get it going. And if you're new, I would encourage you to please subscribe. Join the hundreds of thousands that watch the Dr. Taylor Marshall podcast. I appreciate all of you. Make sure you hit that bell. And also, I'm uploading a ton of shorts and outtakes over at Instagram. So you can follow me over at Instagram at DR Taylor Marshall. All right, let's get back into it. The fourth dubium. open my notes, here we go, is the conferral of holy orders upon women. You've heard me talk about this so often. The reason women can't be priests and can't be deacons and can't be subdeacons, acolytes, lectors, exorcists, porters, or receive tonsure, or be bishops, or be popes, is because holy orders conforms a man ontologically and metaphysically that means in his very being, conforms him to the priesthood of Christ. And Christ is male. We know that Christ is male. If you want to argue that with me, we'll just talk about how the Bible says that Christ was circumcised. That settles it. Christ was male. And bodies, according to Genesis, come as male or female. And the very central mystery of Christ revealed religion 
the source and the summit is the Holy Eucharist, the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. And in the center of the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass is, this is my body, hoc est enum corpus meum. Bodies come male and female, and so the priesthood must be male because Jesus is male. If it's a female body in the priesthood and a female body signified in the Eucharist, that means because the mystery of the church is the bride and Christ is the groom. This is the very final chapters of the book of Revelation, the apocalypse. The marriage of Christ and the bride, the church. So if the priest is conformed in persona Christi, he, this is my body, he must be male, and he gives the body of Christ to the church, which corporately is female. If the priest is female and the church is female, then you have a lesbian religion and a lesbian mystery icon, and that is not biblical and it's not traditional. It's very obvious how this works. This is why priests are male. So, the fourth dubium asks the question on this topic. It says, after the statements of some prelates, which have been neither corrected nor retracted, according to which, with Vatican II, the theology of the church, and I would just, I know all of these points seem to be drawing from Vatican II. Why? Why, as Catholics, can we not draw from all the councils? I don't know. Maybe there's a purpose here. I'm not a cardinal. I'm just a lay guy. I'm a dad with a webcam. All right, so who am I? But I'm just, I'm kind of thinking out loud here. Does every citation have to come from Vatican II? It is asked whether the dictum of the Second Vatican Council is still valid, that the common priesthood of the faithful and the ministerial or hierarchical priesthood differ essentially and not only in degree, and that presbyters, by virtue of the sacred power of order, that of offering sacrifice and forgiving sins, act in the name and in the person of Christ the Mediator, through whom the spiritual sacrifice of the faithful is made perfect. It is furthermore asked whether the teachings of St. John Paul II, Apostolic Letter, or Natio Sacerdotalis, which teaches as truth to be definitively held the impossibility of conferring priestly ordination on women, is it still valid? So that this teaching is no longer subject to change, nor to the free discussion of pastors and theologians. So basically, the five dubia cardinals here are saying, look, is the apostolic letter by John Paul II definitive or not? Like, are, do we still have an open question on women's ordination or has it been slam closed? I would say you don't even, you could start citing Thomas Aquinas. You could cite Bonaventure. You could cite Blessed Duns Scotus. You could cite St. Paul. You could cite St. John Chrysostom. I mean, there's all kinds of fathers and saints that you could cite on this. There cannot be women priests, because as soon as you make a woman a priest, she's not a priest, she's a priestess, and a priestess is always pagan, associated with priestesses, priestess, are always associated with Gaia, Mother Earth. Now, it kind of makes you think back to Pachamamas. That's not today's show. Number five, dubium, about the statement, forgiveness is a human right. And the Holy Father's insistence on the duty to absolve everyone and always so that repentance would not be necessary condition for sacramental absolution. It is asked whether the teaching on the Council of Trent, ding, 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 here we go. My button's not. 
There it is. Council of Trent, according to which the contrition of the penitent, which contests in detesting the sin committed with the intention of sinning no more. Session 14. Is necessary for the validity of sacramental confession? Is it still in force so that the priest must postpone absolution when it's clear that this condition is not fulfilled? End quote. This is so key. And my wife and I had this conversation last night with our teenagers because my wife is part of a Facebook group in which it was discussed a young man went to confession at a Novus Ordo parish and confessed mortal sins. And the priest said, none of those are mortal sins. So just confess a sin and I'll absolve you. And this is part of the problem in the modernist tribunal of confession of the sacrament of penance, all kinds of confusion. Also, it is the teaching of the Catholic Church, going back to Trent, that the person in the confessional making the confession must have at least a little bit of contrition, not perfect contrition, but a little bit of contrition, and intend to not commit that sin again. Doesn't mean the person won't, but intend to stop. So if someone comes into confession and says, I'm sleeping with my girlfriend daily. The priest can say, well, do y'all live together? And he can say, yes. Well, that's an occasion of sin. If you're sharing the same bed every night, you're living with your boyfriend or girlfriend, then you're in an occasion of sin. And that reveals that you're not really wanting to stop sinning. So in that case, the priest can say, I'm not going to absolve you until you have her move out or you move out, you stop sharing a bed and you start living a chaste life. You have to at least make moves to stop sinning. All right. And then the person does that and comes back and gets absolved. That's the traditional way of running a confession, right? So this is now a problem because you'll have people come in and, you know, maybe they're in a third marriage. They have no annulment. Um, you have people that are living in sexual relations that aren't natural. Um, you know, it could even be a priest who are censured and shouldn't be doing things right. Unless they make the step towards remedying this occasion for sin, they can be denied absolution. This goes back to some of the questions in the dubia about Amoris Laetitia back in 2016. So that is the basics. And this, this is from July 10th. And it's signed by, as I said in the beginning, Cardinal Braunmuller, Cardinal, here's Cardinal Braunmuller, Cardinal Burke, Cardinal Inyenez, Cardinal Sarah, and Cardinal Zen. Now, these questions were answered by Francis the very next day, or at least the second day which is good. The Pope realizes the big deal. I need to answer these questions, but they were answered in paragraph form. And as you can see, the five dubia are saying yes or no to each of these questions. So they were resubmitted and they were resubmitted on August 21st. And here is the introductory paragraph from the five cardinals to Pope Francis, and I think it's worth reading in full. All right, I'm reading the translation that was provided by LifeSite News. 
I encourage you to go to LifeSite News and read their article because they have the whole thing translated. Holy Father, Most Holy Father, we are very grateful for the answers which you have kindly wished to offer us. We would like to clarify that if we have asked you these questions, it is not out of fear of dialogue with the people of our time, nor of the questions they could ask us about the gospel of Christ. In fact, we, like your holiness, are convinced that the gospel brings fullness to human life and responds to our every question. The concern that moves us is another. We are concerned to see that there are pastors who doubt the ability of the gospel to transform the hearts of men and end up proposing to them no longer sound doctrine, but teaching according to their own likings. We are also concerned that it be understood that God's mercy does not consist in covering our sins, but is much greater in that it enables us to respond to his love by keeping his commandments, that is, to convert and believe in the gospel. I'm going to pause here. I love this. All right, this is something, it, it echoes something that we were talking about here on the podcast about a week and a half ago. People, someone in the comments was saying, you know, why is this so pessimistic? Why are you so pessimistic? And I said, no, on the contrary, I am the most optimistic in the church. Why? Because I believe, and just like the history of the church for 2,000 years, I believe in the power of Jesus Christ on the cross and the resurrection of Christ on the third day, that that mystery, as it's applied to us in the sacraments, I am optimistic and convinced that it will transform sinners, that the most vile sinners, I'm a sinner, that the, the people who are most estranged from God, that the power of Jesus Christ, his dying, his rising again, the preaching of Jesus Christ, the proclamation of the gospel, the rightful administration of the sacraments, the binding and loosing of Peter, all of these things are so powerful, so effective, that they will sanctify the world, not in, as they kind of quote here, a Lutheran understanding. You know, Luther said that we are nasty sinners, turds, covered with white snow. Right, So God never really changes us. He just covers us with white snow, covers the problem, sweeps it under the rug. That's the Lutheran idea of justification by faith alone, by imputation of alien righteousness. That is not what Catholics believe. Catholics believe that when you receive the divine grace of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, righteousness is not imputed to you like put onto a spreadsheet in Microsoft Excel. No, the grace, the righteousness, and the sanctification of Jesus Christ is infused. It is poured into you. A metaphysical regeneration happens so that you begin to be transformed into gold. Right? You are your base, you're ugly, you're lead. And then by the love of God and the grace of the sacraments, you begin to turn into something precious, pure, holy. That's optimism. Pessimism is what you see in modernism. None of these people are ever going to repent. These people that are in irregular marriages, there's nothing that we could ever do for them. People who are same-sex attracted, there's, there's no hope for them. We just have to acknowledge all the brokenness and just pat everybody on the head. 
No, that's pessimistic. That is not the gospel. That is not the truth. The truth is Jesus rose on the third day. The truth is, is bread and wine transubstantiate into that resurrected body and blood of Jesus Christ. The truth is, is baptism is not a symbolic ceremony. Baptism regenerates the person. A person is born again through the power of sacramental baptism and given faith, hope, and charity. They become actually pleasing to God. They are able to believe in God and act accordingly to do good works. This is a very optimistic understanding of Catholicism. And I'm glad to see that our five cardinal dubia are on board with that. Why? Because they are Orthodox Catholics. They then go on to say this to Pope Francis. With the same sincerity with which you have answered us, we must add that your answers have not resolved the doubts that we have raised. So here the five cardinals say, look, we appreciate you wrote us back, but it doesn't answer the questions. We want yes or no answers. They have not resolved the doubts we have raised, but have, if anything, deepened them. So the response of Francis actually made them more doubtful about the trajectory of the Synod on Synodality. We therefore feel obliged to repropose, reformulating them, these questions to your holiness, who, as the successor of Peter, is charged by the Lord to confirm your brethren in the faith. This is all the more urgent in view of the upcoming Synod, which many of us want to use to deny which many want to use to deny catholic doctrine on the very issues which are dubia concern we therefore repropose our questions to you so that they can be answered with a simple yes or no so they're reproposing they're saying we're even more confused now francis and we just want a yes or no answer and so these dubia are very much the same. And that is, well, no, actually, the first one is a bit different. Let me read it to you. So we want to rephrase our dubium. Okay, so now they're going to they're gonna kind of tighten it. All right, make it more clear. We want to rephrase our dubium, say the five cardinals. Is it possible for the church today to teach doctrines contrary to those she has previously taught in matters of faith and morals, whether by the Pope ex cathedra or in the definitions of an ecumenical council or in the ordinary universal magisterium of the bishops dispersed throughout the world, question mark. So here is, can the church today teach doctrines contrary to the church in the past? Yes or no? I want Francis to answer that. So far, as of the recording of this pro- program, no answer. Number two, let us rephrase this dubium. Is it possible that in some circumstances a pastor could bless unions between homosexual persons, thus suggesting that homosexual behavior as such would not be contrary to God's law and a person's journey toward God? Question mark. 
Linked to this dubium, it goes on to say, is the need to raise another. Does the teaching upheld by the universal ordinary magisterium that every sexual act outside of marriage, and in particular homosexual acts, constitutes an objectively grave sin against God's law, regardless of the circumstances in which it takes place and the intention with which it is carried out, continue to be valid? Question mark. Yes or no? I kind of feel like they should have put like a little uh, yes, you know, like when you're uh, like a little kid, you know, and like you're in kindergarten and a girl says, do you like me? And then you open up the thing and then there's a yes or no with the heart. And then you have to circle yes or no. I kind of feel like the Cardinals should have done that. They should have put maybe a little yes, seek et non, right? And then put a little yes or a no and then a little heart. And then Francis, he could just save time. He could just say yes, or he could circle no. And then he could just ship it back. That would be cool. Maybe he will. The third dubium is rephrased like this. Question, will the Synod of Bishops be held in Rome, and which includes only a chosen representation of pastors and faithful, exercise in the doctrinal or pastoral matters on which it will be called to express itself, the supreme authority of the church, which belongs exclusively to the Roman pontiff, and unicum capite suo, the college of bishops, question mark. So they want to say, is the synod of synodality going to be equal to the decree of a pope and or the college of bishops in union with the pope, like an ecumenical council? In other words, when this stuff comes out of the synod of synodality, do we have to accept it as if it were from a pope or from an ecumenical council? Fourth, this is the women's ordination. We therefore must reformulate our dubium. Could the church in the future have the faculty to confer priestly ordination on women, thus contradicting that the exclusive reservation of this sacrament to baptize males belongs to the very substance of the sacrament of orders, which the church cannot change? Can a woman be ordained? Check yes or no. I'm going to go in there and I'm going to do no. And then the fifth one, we would like to rephrase our dubium. Can a penitent who, while admitting a sin, refuses to make in any way the intention not to commit it again, validly receive sacramental absolution? So let's say someone comes in and says, I've been robbing banks weekly. And the priest says, well, are you going to stop robbing banks? And he says, no. Can that man receive sacramental absolution in the sacrament of penance? Traditionally, according to Trent, the answer is no. If I go in to confession and I say, bless me, Father, for I've sinned. I have been committing piracy on the high seas monthly for the past 10 years. And he says, well, are you going to stop committing piracy on the high seas? And I say, well, no, I got my crew. This is how we make our money but I want absolution. The priest cannot give me absolution for my sin of piracy, of being a pirate. That is Catholic teaching. If a young person goes in there and says, I masturbate every day and I watch porn every day. And he says, well, do you have covenant eyes or a blocker or 
you know, is there a way, can you get a dumb phone or something, you know, what, what can we do to get pornography, a layer of separation from you on a daily basis? And they're like, I'm not really interested in doing that. I just probably going to just keep looking at porn every day. Well, you can't receive absolution. You see, there has to be the movement of repentance ever so small. There has to be just some tinder, some spark of repentance of wanting to change and move forward. And if that's not there, it's called the sacrament of penance, repentance, reconciliation. You know, we can't just we can't just say you're forgiven if there is no love in your heart for God and wanting to change. You know, it's like, you know, beating someone every day and like, I love you. Well, are you going to stop beating me? No, I'm going to keep beating you, but I love you. Well, that doesn't make sense, right? And and the sacraments have to be consistent. And this rephrasing of the five dubium was signed by Cardinal Braunmuller, Cardinal Burke, Cardinal Inunez. Oh, sorry. B wrong button. There's Cardinal Inunez. Cardinal Sarah and Cardinal Zen of Hong Kong. Now, why is all of this happening? Well, I have a suspicion of why this is happening. There was the dubia in 2016. There's now the new set of dubia going into the synod. That new dubia was not answered clearly. In fact, it made more confusion for the five cardinal dubia brothers, fathers, rather. And so they reissued them. And when they reissued them, they put out their address to the faithful. And I read part of that earlier. I don't want to read the whole thing. I think you can go to LifeSite News or Ed Penton or Diane Montagna, some of these stellar people who cover these things and provide translations. But they issued a statement to the faithful of the Catholic Church. It begins with, we members of the Sacred College of Cardinals, in according with duty of all the faithful to manifest to the sacred pastors their opinion on matters which pertain to the good of the church, and above all, in accord with the responsibility of cardinals to assist the Roman pontiff individually, especially in the daily care of the universal church, in view of various declarations of highly placed prelates pertaining to the celebration of the next synod of bishops that are openly contrary to the constant doctrine and discipline of the church, and have generated and continue to generate great confusion and the falling into error among the faithful and other persons of goodwill have manifested our, our deepest concern to the Roman pontiff. Let me tell you why this is so important and so key. They have now admonished the Pope thrice, three times. Why is that important? Well, it goes back to the Bible. St. Paul says that a heretic is to be admonished. Also, Jesus, when he's talking to the apostles, he talks about how you should go privately to your brother who has sinned against you, and after you've gone privately, right, you bring people with you, and then after that, you declare it to the church. All right, this is the teaching of Jesus Christ. Cardinal Burke, Cardinal Brownmuller, these other, Cardinal Sarah, Cardinal Zen, Carl 
uh, Cardinal and Nunez are following the exact playbook of Jesus Christ for admonishing and publicly disciplining a heretic. I want people to connect the dots here. They don't say it, but if you read their statement to the faithful, they talk about that it is their responsibility as cardinals to assist the Roman pontiff individually, especially in the daily care of the universal church, and that they are concerned about the prelates, not named here, they are concerned here about the prelates who are questioning the constant discipline and doctrine of the Catholic Church. Why is this important? This is why it's important. Robert Bellerman. In his book, De Ecclesia, it's in the Controversies, Tomb 2. This is Volume 1 on the Councils, on the Church Militant, and the Marks of the Church. This version is translated into English by my friend Ryan Grant, who's been here on the Dr. Taylor Marshall Podcast. This is the book right here. Now, there's another book. I'm going to explain why this is so important. This is On the Roman Pontiff by Robert Bellerman, okay? This is Tomb 1. This is Tomb 2, all right? In here, he talks about his the five opinions on whether there can be a heretical pope. And in the fifth opinion, he says if a pope were to become a manifest heretic, his words, manifest heretic, he would fall de facto from the papacy. All right, do I have your attention yet? Bellarmine says that if a pope were to become a manifest heretic, not a private heretic, but a manifest heretic, he would fall de facto from the papacy. So a lot of people in the world are on the internet, on YouTube, on blogs, on their websites, and they're saying, Francis is not the pope. Francis is not the... They're saying this, right? And they point to Robert Bellarmine on the Roman pontiff. But, as Ryan Grant has proposed and shown, there's more to it than just the Pope falling de facto immediately from the papacy. There's actually an ecclesiastical canonical process. And after reading all of this, I believe that the eminent canon lawyer, expert Cardinal Burke, is following that process. And I'm going to read you that process right now from uh, St. Robert Bellarmine. Many of you, before I read it, many of you have said, what, what's going to happen? Is there any process? What, how do we get out of this mess? Here it is. All right. He says, he asked the question on the necessity of celebrating councils. And the fourth reason, he gives six reasons, but the fourth reason is suspicion of heresy in the Roman pontiff. Not that the Roman pontiff is a heretic, but there could be suspicion that the Roman pontiff is promoting, condoning, or even teaching heresy. So if there is that suspicion, that is one of the six reasons to have a council. If perhaps it might happen, or if he were an incorrigible tyrant, two reasons were given here. If the pope was under suspicion of heresy, or if he were an incorrigible tyrant. For then a general council ought to be gathered either to depose the Pope if he should be found to be a heretic or certainly to admonish him. 
What does admonish mean? It means to warn, to issue a warning. If he seemed incorrigible in morals, as it is related in the Eighth Council, general councils ought to impose General councils ought to impose judgment on controversies arising in regard to the Roman pontiff, albeit not rashly. For this reason, we read that the Council of Sinvasano, in the case of St. Marcellinus, as well as Roman councils in the case of Pope Damasus, Sixtus III, and Symmachus, as well as Leo III and Leo IV, none of whom were condemned by a council, Marcellinus enjoined penance upon himself in the presence of the council, and the rest purged themselves. Okay, so that paragraph right there says that after admonishment, the cardinals could begin a deposition, and that deposition presumably would be based on what Bellarmine said in Tome 1, on the Roman pontiff. All that being said, the warnings are always two or three, right? You give people, when it comes to heresy, two or three chances. And we've now hit two or three chances. What happens next? Well, you go to the church, says Jesus Christ. First, you warn them privately. Second, you bring brothers with you, which is what has happened here two or three times, and then you go to the church. And this is why I believe the five cardinals, after they have issued the dubia again and not received an answer, they have addressed the Catholic faithful. I'd like to read to you the last paragraph of their statement to you, the Catholic faithful. Given the gravity of the matter of the dubia, especially in view of the imminent session of the Synod of Bishops, we judge it our duty to inform you, the faithful, Canon 212, sub 3, so that you may not be subject to confusion, error, and discouragement, but rather pray for the universal church, and in particular the Roman pontiff, that the gospel may be taught ever more clearly and followed ever more faithfully. Signed, Cardinals Brandmuller, Burke, Inignes, Sarah, and Zen. Issued today, October 2nd, 2023, which is the Feast of the Guardian Angels. And don't we need Guardian Angels? I believe, this is my opinion, I believe that the canonical steps laid down by St. Robert Bellarmine in these two books are being fulfilled and if the fortitude of these cardinals endures and more cardinals join them, we could be on the path to admonishment and ideally complete dogmatic concord on faith and morals in the Catholic Church. If that concord and harmony on dogma and morality in the Church is not reached through these admonishments of these cardinals, things the de facto apparent schism that we live in will become manifest. What happens next? Well, according to Robert Bellarmine, what should happen next is a trial. Is the Pope a manifest heretic? That's the next step. 
The answer is yes, there is a very clear path forward. Thanks for watching. Do you want to go deeper? I've got some online courses, especially on the traditional Latin mass and the Roman rite. You can go to nsti.com and sign up as a student, nsti.com. We have 10 courses. You can earn your certificate in theology, philosophy, apologetics. Check it out over at nsti.com. It's where I go deeper with the students. Also, if you want to get the history of this controversy, I suggest you go and get the book Infiltration. It's the book I wrote on the last 200 years of how the Catholic Church has gotten herself into this awkward situation where you have seminaries, dioceses, convents, monasteries, religious orders, the Jesuits, even the Vatican itself, infiltrated by people who don't believe in Catholicism. You know, that's just the basic question. Are you Catholic or are you not Catholic? Do you believe everything the Catholic Church teaches, and are you in communion with Rome? It's a very basic, basic situation. That's what we've got to get to. All right, also, if you want to sign copy of these books, I encourage you to go to patreon.com and sign up as a Patreon. You can go to patreon.com forward slash DR Taylor Marshall. I'll send you a rosary, sign books, look at the various levels, and I appreciate everyone who currently supports this podcast. Really do appreciate it. And give a shout out to everyone who supports. All right. We're going to now close up. We'll say a prayer. We'll say a, we'll say a Hail Mary with the intentions of the five cardinals, where they say, pray in particular for the Roman pontiff that the gospel may be taught ever more clearly. That's our intention today. And please join me in prayer. In nomine patris et fidei et spiritus sancti. Amen. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum, benedicta tu in molieribus, et benedictus fructus ventris tui, Jesus. Sancta Maria, Mater Dei, ora pro nobis peccatoribus, nunc et etora mortis nostre. Amen. Nomini Patris, et Fidi, et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Remember our Lord Jesus Christ says, you're the light of the world and the salt of the earth. So go out there and be salty. God bless and Godspeed. Pray for Holy Mother Church.